We are all children of this universe, not just Earth or Mars or this system, but the whole grand fireworks. And if we are interested in Mars at all, it is only because we wonder over our past and wonder terribly about our possible future. The Interplanetary Podcast, the exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and Canada, Matt Russell and Jake Robbins. Welcome back to the show, Jake. Amazing to have you back on. We haven't had you on for absolutely ages. Yeah, it's been way too long. It has, hasn't it? I'm sure it's probably over a year, which is not good, is it? Yeah. If, if you lose track of, of how long ago it was, it's too long. That's what I say. <laughs> it is too long. It is too long. So uh, as you are aware, this is Mars Month on the Interplanetary Podcast. And Jake, tell us a little bit about your own podcast. You are the Mars space person podcasting, right? <laughs> well, I try. Yeah. So yeah, I, I host a, a podcast called We Martians. And uh, I have been covering Mars exploration for just over five years now. We had our, our fifth birthday um, a few weeks ago, which is very exciting. So I like to think that I have been preparing for this month for a very long time and getting ready for it. Um, you know, I did my first podcast on the Perseverance rover long before it was called Perseverance back in, I, I don't know, the summer of 2016 or something. So I've been like just just jazzed for this month, just waiting for this to happen. Um, but yeah, so I cover basically all kinds of robotic missions, so rovers and orbiters. Um, I dabble a little bit into big rockets where I think that they can, you know, impact planetary exploration and a little bit of human spaceflight too, just because I think people going into deep space to the moon and Mars is uh, just really exciting. So that's what I uh, spend my time on. And uh, I went full time this year. So it's been just a really exciting few months kind of adjusting to a new life and and uh, living and breathing Mars and space every minute of every day. It's awesome. Yeah, that, that is living the dream, the full-time podcaster. That's, that's <laughs> the stuff that dreams are made of. Um, your show's absolutely, you know, it is the it is the kind of go-to thing if I want to find out about Mars. You've, you've had some amazing interviews as well recently. Like, you just seem to have a continual line of brilliant people because we were massively bigging up uh, Sarah Al-Amiri from the United Arab Emirates. And, yeah. Um, and then you, and then I was like, oh my god, he's got her on the show! Brilliant, amazing. <laughs> yeah, she was, um, she was incredible. It was a really, uh, a really inspiring interview. Um, she has just got quite a story behind her. I mean, she uh, started as just a computer engineer uh, in the UAE Space Agency before it was even a space agency, and her rise can be described that nothing other than meteoric, right? Like it just, she just rocketed to the top. So she started as just an engineer and then science lead and then deputy project manager. And then she became a, a cabinet minister for the government for advanced sciences. And then she just recently uh, became the president of the entire space agency. And she's younger than me. So it's like a really kind of intimidating thing to, uh, to hop yeah. on uh, and talk with her, but she had such cool things to say about, you know, her team and the mission. And uh, it's, it's a conversation that I will remember for a long time, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, and I, I'm sure you'll agree with this, that the best thing about doing the podcast is all the absolutely incredible people that you meet. And when you meet people in space, like virtually everyone that we've we've had on the show, if not everyone that we've had on the show, are just fantastic people to talk to. And they're always very humble and they always love giving their time as well. Yeah, it's a it's a small world still, you know, like the the space community is 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 still pretty niche and, and everybody kind of knows each other. Um, and so even the celebrities are not really like big celebrities, right? Like they're just kind of regular people and they're just totally fun to hang around with. I've had lots of really interesting experiences like that where I come up to someone who I think is just an absolute rock star and they're just totally fine to talk to and totally normal. And that's like really refreshing. So yeah, I love it. It's a, it's a cool community to be a part of. And uh, I, I cherish all the different, you know, conversations I get to have. Anyone who listens to this podcast, I'm sure it already knows your podcast, but if, if you're listening and you've not checked out We Martians, you should definitely do so because it's, it's, it's part of the family. I like to think of you as family, Jake. And, <laughs> oh, thank and, you. And, you know, I tell you what was funny is that obviously we started our podcast at a really similar time mm -hmm, and it yeah. was only when I <laughs> just thought about then when you said you had your fifth anniversary and I just haven't been tracking it and I think I've missed mine. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like, God damn it. So, I, yeah, I've, I've, I've missed the fifth anniversary. It's because Jamie's not a regular anymore. So it's like, ah, so he, he's not there to remind me about things like that. It's very Yeah, annoying. yeah. It feels weird without Jamie. I kind of miss him. It's it's, uh, it's different. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we all miss him. We all yeah. miss him. He, he, yeah, he, I mean, he's good because he, he comes back and does the odd thing. But I've good. got I've got a nice, um, I've got a nice bunch of co-hosts now. A sort of round robin of brilliance. Um, let's talk about Mars. Let's talk about Mars. And, and what I, I guess what I really got you on for is to, is to talk about all these missions that are at Mars right now. Because the one thing that, that I hadn't spotted, actually, was Mars has never been this busy, that there's 11 active missions, and that's the most that there's ever been at Mars. Yeah. Obviously, there's nowhere near enough time to talk about all of them. <laughs> because that would be ridiculous. <laughs> but um, I guess we should just talk about the ones that have got there quite recently. And I, I will quiz you about some of the things like insight and stuff that, that <laughs> sure. I know you're, you're, super, you're super clued up on, on about. But uh, where to start? I actually think probably the best place to start is Perseverance Rover. Yeah, right? the headline. So the headline. I mean, it is the big one, isn't it? And, and it is, of course, yeah. it's the most... It, it's probably it's the most expensive thing at Mars, I would think, right now. It's the sort of yeah. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's slightly more expensive than Curiosity. You know, it's it's twin rover that landed, um, you know, nine years ago or so. So they're they're both kind of in the two and a half billion dollar range for for mission costs. So they're not cheap, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're definitely not cheap. Uh, well, yeah, and that's I guess that's what what the seven minutes. Seven minutes of terror is all about. <laughs> when it's like very, very, very easy for something to go wrong at that point. So we've got curiosity. So in your mind, what is the reason why they have to send another rover? Because, yeah. you know, why not send another piece of hardware? Like Insight is a different type of thing. Why yeah. send another rover? Yeah, so so perseverance is sort of um, the next in a, a line of missions. You know, they're all they're all kind of related in a certain way. So if you think back to um, uh, as far back as Pathfinder in the late '90s with the little Sojourner rover, and then the Mars Exploration rover, Spirit and Opportunity, and then Curiosity, and then all the all the orbiters that are supporting those too. So the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is taking all these high res, you know, it's the spy camera at Mars, all these high res uh, images of the surface, um, Maven exploring the atmosphere. So all of these uh, missions are sort of trying to answer those big questions like, you know, what what happened in Mars' past? Because at some point in the far past, Mars and Earth were not that different. And they took two different, you know, roads. There's a fork in the road and Earth went down this, this path where... It was wet and warm and life and, and, you know, very luscious, the world we know today. And Mars kind of died and turned cold and dry. And we were trying to figure out what happened, right? And is there an opportunity for life to have arisen on Mars? That's the, the big kind of deep question. And so all of these missions are sort of related to that that overarching you know, goal. Um, early in Mars's exploration history at NASA, they were kind of following this strategy of follow the water. And they're like, let's see if we can find um, where the water was on, on Mars. And that might teach us something in spirit and opportunity sort of, you know, establish that. They confirmed, yes, there was water on Mars. Sometimes it was flowing. Sometimes it was standing still. Um, this could be a place where life would be. So then curiosity sort of iterates on that. And they said, okay, well, if we know there's water, uh, is there signs of habitable environments? You know, we need more than just water to, to exist. Like, are there places on Mars where we, where life could live? And so Gale Crater was chosen as the destination to explore that. And Curiosity seems to have confirmed that. Like, yes, there was um, all these different uh, aqueous environments where, where life could exist. And then Perseverance is the next step again, where it's saying, okay, we know there's water. We know that that water created a habitable environment. Let's see if we can find the leftover traces of what life might have left. So that's kind of how science works, and that's kind of how these missions works. You kind of build one idea at a time, uh, incrementally stepping forward down towards the, the answers to your question. So that's kind of why we needed Perseverance. Um, the Jezero Crater where it landed is uh, similar to Gale Crater in that, you know, it's this this place where there was standing water at some point. And so they're just kind of trying to iterate and, and go forward and, and see what else they can learn. So the instruments are all upgraded, um, you know, based on what we learned from Curiosity. And the, the rovers got some tweaks on it to make it last a little longer and be a little more productive. And that's kind of what we're, we're hoping happens. Looking at Jezero 
crater from from like the the aerial pictures. It's it seems almost blatantly obvious that it's <laughs> that it's that it's a water feature, right? It just looks like oh, yeah. water's poured down and it's and it's created that kind of flowery basin. Yeah, it's a, it's a stunning site, honestly. Like, um, and it's it's interesting because we so we didn't really. The, the Jezero crater, the obviousness that you say, like it didn't really become apparent to us until sort of the late 2010s. You know, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter arrived in 2006, I think is when uh, it launched or, or landed or whatever. Um, and we started, you know, getting these these really high resolution pictures. And um, by the time we sort of spotted Jezero and started exploring and going like, hey, wait, this is a pretty great place. Uh, Curiosity was sort of already on its way. It had its site picked and it was, it was good to go. So we had to kind of park it and learn what we could over the last 10 years. Um, but once once Perseverance landing site selection came up, uh, you know, Jezero became a, a candidate and it was uh, it wasn't super close. I'll be honest, like they, Jezero was pretty much the shoe in for a long time. Um, and I'm sure that some of the people that were advocating for the other sites would would be up in arms at me for saying that. But Jezero is just like a, such a really like you said, it's so obvious. There's just this magnificent delta feature it's like it's the the mouth of the mississippi river um without the gulf of mexico there it's just this huge spread of sediments bringing all these rocks from all over this massive watershed into this one place and uh, it's the exact kind of situation you would expect to be looking for life and it's just super exciting that we're, we're finally there and looking at it yeah i mean is, is there a reason why it's the sort of place you would look for life is that is that is that similar on Earth? Is it, do you get environments like that? River deltas are they particularly teeming with life? Then yeah, absolutely. Um, you get like you get this uh, 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 slowing environment. So that, you know the, the the river would flow out, and then as it spreads into the delta, it slows down, and so sediments will settle to the bottom, and that's what kind of creates that delta uh, deltaic formation you know that's that's what builds up the, the sediments and you can trap um uh signs of life inside of that right so if there was fossils in the water or fossils in the rocks it gets covered up by these sediments and preserved and so it's a really great place to sort of you know dig down and look what was underneath and see what happens um so on earth yes deltas are great places to look for for uh, uh microorganisms and, and, and signs of life and all those kinds of things and so that's why it's so exciting to see this massive feature on mars yeah, so the big difference, I suppose, between Percy and Curiosity is that Percy's going to be coring samples rather than trying to sort it out themselves. So how on earth does that work? And and, yeah. and how long are we going to have to wait for the results? <laughs> it, it is a long time, I will fully admit. Uh, the, the timeline leaves some things to be desired. But uh, yeah, so if you think about Curiosity, Curiosity had a drill, but it was uh, it's kind of like a, a percussive grinding drill. So it just like you know, bores a hole and creates a bunch of, of, of fines, you know, these sort of like drill tailings and then picks them up. And then Curiosity has a little lab inside of it. So it kind of ingests the sample and then they blast it with x-rays and they bake it and they hit it with spectrographs and do all this kind of stuff and try to figure out what was there right on site. Uh, Perseverance, like you said, has this coring drill and it's part of this sample acquisition program. It's honestly one of the most complex and intricate and amazing instruments ever recreated and sent to another planet. It's this huge system. Uh, it's got two robotic arms. It's got these these bit carousels and all these kind of things it has to do. So it drills a core. It pulls out. It's kind of like a size of maybe like a marker, like a like a Sharpie or something. That's kind of the size of and shape of the rock that it'll pull out. And then it ingests that sample into the, the, the system and it puts it in a little tube and it seals it hermetically and then they label it and, and then they kind of save it. And so the rover is going to be kind of going along a path and picking up all these different samples. And then once it sort of establishes, they haven't quite figured out the, the final strategy, but they're going to reach a certain number of samples and then they're going to kind of deposit them on the ground. And later, uh, another mission is going to come deposit what they're calling a fetch rover, which is like sort of a, a smaller rover optimized for speed. And it's just going to zip around and pick up these little samples, bring them back to its landing platform where a rocket is going to go off and send it back to space. And it's going to make a long journey back to Earth where we can study those uh, in a big fancy lab here on planet Earth. So that's kind of the plan. Uh, I think the, the notional uh, timeline right now is to get those samples back in our hands in 2031. So it's a it's a bit of a bit of a wait. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a wait. I mean, it's it, that sounds incredibly complicated. Presumably, like going around picking up the samples that that's going to be that's a tall order, and then 
getting on a getting on a Mars Ascent vehicle is a tall order. Yeah, <laughs> and then it's a of lot course, of firsts, run, right? Run, yeah, yeah, rendezvousing in space and getting it back is a is another tall order. But then saying that, I suppose. Uh, the, the NASA and JAXA have been pretty good, haven't they, with sample returns in the last, well, last year. They were incredible. The, yeah, JAXA's great at it. Um, you know, they've been uh, doing a couple different uh, asteroid missions. And then, yeah, NASA has the OSIRIS-REx mission now that's retrieved samples and it's on its way back. So that's great to see. Th this one is just an order of magnitude more complex, though, because you're you know, on the surface of a of a body with gravity, right? Like it, with with the asteroid Bennu, Bennu, you sort of just kind of collide with it and scoop it up and then fly away, and it's it's a lot simpler than than what uh, Perseverance is trying to do. So it is going to be a very complex, very uh, risky endeavor uh, to be sure. You know, a lot of the the meetings that I've been sitting on, uh, sitting in on, kind of listening to them plan this out, have mostly by now just been focusing on how do we organize as as a, a, a an organization, right? Because this is an international mission. You guys over there in the UK are helping out quite a bit. Airbus has the contract for the Fetch Rover and the Earth Return Orbiter. So ESA is sort of managing a bunch of stuff like that. And NASA's got to do it. And they have to coordinate and talk to each other and all these different program offices all over the planet. Uh, just trying to get themselves into a rhythm where they can, you know, not make mistakes and, and not take forever to build it. That's just been a big challenge. Um, but then, like you said, like getting a rover, we have to go land in the same place that we already landed. So we need really accurate targeting to get the rover to the surface. You need, uh, this fetch rover is technology we haven't really built before. We haven't built a rover optimized for speed. They've been optimized for science. So this is a new thing. Uh, no one's ever launched a rocket from the surface of Mars before. Uh, and uh, Northrop Grumman just got the contract to build that uh, this, this last week. And so we're gonna see what that looks like. I have no idea what kind of rocket that's gonna look like. It's gonna be very different from what we're used to here on, on Earth. and. Yeah, lots of fun stuff. Like I said, rendezvous in space around Mars and then transferring samples from one spacecraft to another and then the return journey from Mars. We've never done that. So there's just like all sorts of crazy stuff happening. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that the most similar mission in recent years has been the Changi 5, hasn't it, really? That's on going to the moon and landing, taking back off with some samples. I mean, it, it, but it doesn't have the fetch rover bit in it and it's at the moon, you know, it's, it's obviously orders and orders of magnitude yeah that one happened a lot faster <laughs> yeah man did it i couldn't believe it, it was all in, all in christmas week wasn't it was yeah it was uh, very quick yeah the thinking behind it is no matter how great a piece of technology they get to land on mars you can't substitute for a big laboratory and human beings working on it right yeah, and that's like samples from Mars, you know, pristine samples. So not like the meteorites we have today, but pristine samples we've collected on Mars are they're kind of considered the holy grail of planetary science right now. Um, you know, NASA has been using this uh, report called the Decadal Survey to sort of guide its science objectives. This is a, a, a study that comes out once every 10 years, and it's basically all the scientists get together and they say, these are the biggest questions we have. These are the priorities for what we want to explore. It's sort of like a, a community consensus of where we should go next, right? They've done two of these reports. We're just at the end of the second one. They're building the third one right now. So, you know, for the last 20 years, we've had these decadal surveys. And since before decadal surveys, even the very first report was like, we need to get samples from Mars. Like this is the this needs to be the top priority, and that's how long they've kind of been uh, chewing at this uh, to get it going. Um, the, like you said, you can use facilities on Earth that you can't take to Mars. You know, everything we do right now on Mars has to fit into a little rover shape, and so that's that really confines what you can do. You can have massive, massive labs on Earth that do all sorts of crazy stuff. You can upgrade those instruments over time. Um, we've been studying Apollo samples, for example for 50 years, we're still studying them. You know, they went and picked those up in the 1960s and 70s, and they're still, you know, unpacking new samples that they haven't touched for those 50 years and said, hey, well, since that time, we've invented this new instrument that does a lot of cool stuff, and now we get to study it again all over uh, with these new features. And so they just keep giving, right? And uh, Apollo samples have transformed planetary science. We use the, the baselines that we've learned from those to, you know, build on all sorts of science across Mars and and Mercury and you know Jupiter, all these kind of places we've learned these things. And now being able to have that third uh, uh, sample, so we'd have Earth, we'd have the Moon, and we'd have Mars, will just reinforce that science even better. Like it's going to transform everything we know about Mars and the rest of the solar system. To be honest, 
Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of a no brainer. It's all, it's almost a bit of a mystery why we haven't really kind of it's it's been a kind of a bigger push for it before, really. Yeah, well, like I said, the scientists have always wanted it, but uh, there's been probably a bit of a technology barrier. There's been a funding barrier, um, but it's just. You know, it's just taken this long to finally get all the pieces to line up because it's not just as simple as one person deciding, okay, it's time to go, right? Because you have to get everyone on board. I mean, even NASA couldn't even pull it off themselves. They had to get help from ESA in order to, you know, fill the funding gap and, and make sure that this wasn't some $10 billion boondoggle, right? They had to they had to figure out how to get help with it and, and make sure that everyone sort of got a stake in it. And then the more people you add to the team, the difficult, more difficult it is to make decisions, right? Because ESA may want to do it this way and then NASA may want to do it that way. It's tough. It's a challenging, challenging project. I do not envy the managers of that of that project trying to get it to go. Well, yeah, I mean, because the, the, from what I last read, and I don't know whether this is up to date, that the, 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 the kind of mission profile for collecting the, the stuff isn't really sort of fully sorted yet. It's not like you know exactly what it's going to look like. Someone can yeah. draw out the architecture of the plan yet. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's pieces that are still out on contract, right? So the the lander for that second mission is, as far as I know, is still out on contract. They have some baseline ideas for what it needs to do, but that may look completely different for all we know. Um, the rocket was just contract. They were awarded the contract, uh, you know, like I said, last week. So that's going to start coming together. Um, I know ESA has some plans for the Earth return orbiter and that contract just went out as well. So it, the whole project just went into what they call phase A. So they just kind of officially moved it from an idea to a real project. And so it's just now kicking off this year and you're going to start seeing those plans come together. But yeah, there's still lots of pieces like, you know, the, the Perseverance rover is on the surface now and they still aren't quite sure where it's going to drive yet and where it's going to pick up samples and where it's going to drop samples. None of that is really decided yet. So it's still a plan in motion, if you will. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I can't, I can't leave Percy. Uh, I can't leave the subject of Percy without talking about the helicopter. <laughs> uh, so, because, the, because what I've, what I've seen is they're waiting to get the helicopter out to, to decide which way round a rock they're going to go is that is that right is that right yeah yeah kind of so they they landed um in this spot that's it's this nice safe spot kind of off to the right of the delta but in between it and the delta is this very wide arc of sand dunes they're basically like sand traps and they don't really want to drive through it because that would really suck to get your rover stuck in the sand uh, right away as a mission starts so they kind of have to decide if they want to go to the the northeast and go around it or if they want to go south and go around it um, but before they go do all this science, they kind of have to get the helicopter project sort of out of the way. Um, the helicopter is sort of bolted to the bottom of the rover right now, and it's covered up by this little um, protective cover. So they need to jettison that cover, drop the helicopter on the ground, drive away, turn back and look at it, and then film it while it flies around and does all its stuff. Um, and that, that uh, you know, container on the bottom is actually preventing them from using some of their enhanced mobility technologies. So the rover actually moves slower while the helicopter is attached to it as a way to think about it. So they want to get that kind of done and out of the way, get this technology demonstration complete so they can move on to the science. And so they're they're trying to figure out where they want to, you know, where's the where's the helipad on Mars is what they're trying to figure out so they can get this flight going and then uh, move on to the science. Oh my god, it's good. that's going to be even better than the landing video, which was amazing, <laughs> by the way. I mean, I, ca I cannot, I literally cannot believe how good the landing videos were. Yeah. Looking back up, I mean, that was just insane. But, but it's not going to be as cool as as Percy videoing a helicopter on Mars, right? That's just going to look nuts. Yeah, I mean, the footage is just nonstop uh, this year for sure. The the EDL was incredible, and this helicopter stuff is going to be off the charts because you're going to get both viewpoints, right? You're going to have the rover is going to be filming the helicopter flying and the helicopter is going to be filming the rover on the ground. We're going to have like a drone shot of the rover, which we've, the, the best we have of like curiosity and perseverance are just the selfies. So, you know, turning the camera to look back on itself. And so you get this sort of weird fisheye lens thing and it's all kind of wonky angles and they're, they're lovely photos, but it's not the same as having, you know, 30 feet off the ground or whatever it's going to be to, to, see that rover in its environment it's just going to be uh, unbelievable um to me that's that's the only measure of success for this this uh technology demonstration get a rover a picture of the rover on the ground and a picture of the helicopter in the air and two green check marks where this is a success so we're happy with this yeah. so. oh my god yeah i mean will they actually use some of the aerial photography to 
to root perseverance uh, to where it's got to go next? Or, or if they do do that, will that be, really be a sort of massive green tick for the mission? Yeah, well, I mean, that's they're playing their cards close to their chest right now. Uh, it's important to, to remember that this is sort of a a bolt onto the mission so that the technology demonstration of the helicopter has no effect on whether the perseverance mission was successful or not. And so the Rover is completely designed to be able to do everything without help from the helicopter, right? You can't depend on that. Um, if the helicopter does one flight and then crashes and okay, great. We learned some stuff and they move on. If it keeps working and it keeps flying, I, I can't imagine they wouldn't try to use it to sort of enhance what they're already doing with the rover. Um, that's sort of the point of this is to see if we can develop this technology that will guide us for future missions. You know, maybe um, every rover to Mars in the future always has an accompanying helicopter to to do the scout mission for it. You know, to look around and do reconnaissance and really help it decide where it needs to go. Maybe that becomes standard practice. We have to prove the technology out. So I, I think that if the, the helicopter keeps flying and it doesn't break and it doesn't crash, I can't imagine they wouldn't try and use it to, to you know practice that operational bit to, for as long as it keeps working. I, I don't expect it'll last forever. It probably won't last a winter. That's what I that's kind of the hard cap I imagine is that the helicopter won't survive a winter, but who knows? Maybe it'll it'll fly for a few months and, and do some cool stuff. Yeah, it's, the, the, when it flies, that's going to be absolutely epic. I've got one last thing before we move on to, to, to off off perseverance, and that is every time I sort of do a little bit of research around around Mars and Mars landers, I always come across a chap called Giorgio Bianchiardi, who often writes about. Um, his main paper was a paper that he wrote about the label release experiments from the Viking lander and, <laughs> and how and how basically they did have robust evidence for life. Now <laughs> what's your take on what's your take on that? Because I what I'd, and the other part of that question is the the type of analysis that Viking was able to do doesn't seem to have been done again on Mars, and I'm not quite sure why. Do you know? Yeah. Well, so I mean I would I would just couch my statements in the fact that I am not a scientist, so I'm not an astrobiologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, I don't I don't really have the right skill set to be able to look at the data and make my own sort of I know, but you it's, know. it's I, you know what podcasters are very good at having yeah, a, we're the, very the good more at zoomed out view. Making stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> so well and so the, the impressions I get is that they're, you know, there is a scientific consensus that those results are inconclusive. So there are some people who are still advocating that, no, this is conclusive. Um, you know, they had two different Viking landers on two different spots of, of Mars, and they both did the experiment. And in, in one sense, they both kind of came to the same conclusion. And then another one, they came to different conclusions and they repeated the experiment. And sometimes it, it, it replicated the result and sometimes it didn't. So it's like a little wishy-washy on sort of what the results are. Um, the impression I get from talking to people on that is that the Viking mission was just incredibly ambitious. We probably bit off more than we can chew, uh, you know, with the questions we were trying to answer. And I think that's reflected in the the path that the Mars Exploration Program took after that. Right. They they kind of stood back and said, OK, well, let's take it slower. Let's find the water. Let's find the environments where we think life could be, and let's really do it right. Whereas Viking was like the first lander, and we're going to go and look for the microbes right away, like first thing. And it's just like it's a bit much, you know. It's like <laughs> it's like deciding you want to learn how to paint and starting with the Mona Lisa, right? So it's just like it's maybe a bit much. So that's that's kind of what I get from that. Um, and so the the way that the rovers now are kind of approaching that question is is building up a much broader. Um, uh, data set, you know, a much broader body of work in the science that can support one of those claims in the future. So if the Perseverance rover finds something really interesting and maybe can, you know, start to answer those questions the way we wanted Viking to do, uh, they're going to be able to look back on a tremendous amount of papers from a tremendous amount of people to either support or reject those conclusions, right? And I think that's going to be a, uh, a much more robust way to do science rather than just nailing it on the first try very first lander first experiment boom we found life and we think it's it's perfect right so Done. that's kind of how i i think about it yeah that that is really interesting that is actually really really interesting and yes i i really get that that story of building up robust evidence rather than than like the flash in the pan evidence that then you go oh maybe maybe it isn't so yeah it's it's slowly slowly catchy monkey isn't it but i guess that the tantalizing the tantalising chance that there is life on Mars 
is why we have 11 missions at Mars and only one at Venus. Because <laughs> 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 you'd think, yeah, you'd think Venus is a pretty interesting place, but it's it's not as interesting as Mars. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, part of that is, yeah, because Mars is a very interesting place. And part of it is also just a conscious decision to try exploration a different way. Um, they sort of realized early in, in what, you know, the modern Mars exploration program at NASA, which kind of started about 20 years ago, call it, um, they sort of had that realization that we will be much more productive if we do a lot of missions rather than one. Uh, and they're all kind of supporting each other. And so very much today, these missions all interconnect. I mean, Perseverance is exploring a place because Curiosity informed them where to go. It's relaying data up through Odyssey and Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Trace Gas Orbiter and MAVEN, all these orbiters are supporting it. Uh, when these scientists do uh, you know, work on the rover data set, they're ground truthing orbital data and comparing them and making them interlock. And that kind of, you know, like I said, it supports or rejects different conclusions. And so having all these different instruments and all these different missions all operating at the same time, it, it exponentially increases the science output. And so that is sort of something they've consciously tried with Mars. That was a, a design decision in how they do this. Like, let's go every launch window and send something so that we can, uh, you know, be better. And, and other agencies, ESA especially, have sort of, uh, you know, hopped onto that and said, well, hey, well, we can, you know, all of NASA's data is public. Let's also send our missions there and we can all support each other and, and be even more productive. So uh, Venus doesn't quite have that. Like you said, only one mission over yeah. there right now. Um, off and on, they've had missions. And I'm sure if we took the uh, the initiative to do the exact same thing, we could do some pretty crazy stuff at Venus. But it looks like right now the uh, financial appetite is limited to one planet uh, in that yeah. sense. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. So actually... It, it brings me nicely onto the other two missions that, that recently got to Mars, and that's Chanwen-1, which is Chinese. And I'm going to ask a question, really, is with with that all that sort of scientific um, knowledge in mind where you're trying to have lots and lots of missions that interl- interlink like a big jigsaw puzzle, do the Chinese, when they're building Tianwen-1, are they, are they looking at the jigsaw puzzle and trying to find missing pieces that they can use Chan Wen for, or or are they just trying to get in the game? Are they just trying to get skin in the game at this point? Yeah, it's probably a little bit of both. Um, we have to kind of, we have to remember that we don't really have a lot of insight into the Chinese strategy. They're not exactly forthcoming with uh, their plans and their motivations. Uh, so we're sort of piecing together little bits here. But uh, yeah, they do want to do science. They just like the Tianwen-1 mission is definitely a scientific endeavor. You look at the instrument set, they are well-equipped to do pretty valuable science on the surface of Mars and from orbit. Um, but they also are trying to build capability. Uh, space is a strategic goal for the Chinese government. You know, It allows them to exercise that soft power and, and prove to the world that they are a capable nation, uh, that they can do amazing things and that, you know, the, the the way they do things on in China is is the uh, the right way to do it. You know, look look what we can accomplish together under the the Chinese way, right? And so that's it's kind of a little bit of both. So you'll see that a lot with the Tianwen sort of strategy is that they're they're in some senses duplicating work, right? Because there's a lot of data available right now to say find a landing spot, but they are using their own orbiter there now to scout that a little better, right? They wanna kind of do it themselves. And part of that is just practice. We need to learn how to send an orbiter somewhere and take pictures with it and look at the pictures and study it and pick a landing site all by ourselves so that we have that capability, right? Um, so that's kind of what you have to piece together when you're unpacking the Tianwen-1 mission is like, where is it just you know, science driven and where, where is it strategically driven? That's a, it's a difficult one to unpack with them for sure. Yeah. Well, when are we expecting the Rover to, to try and deploy? And do you know what's the, what's the actual architecture of how that actually gets down to the ground? Cause I, I know precious little about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, they're targeting um, May, June, I think for the landing of the, of the Rover. So it's, it's a very similar, um, uh, architecture to the Viking missions, actually. So they, you know, the rover and the orbiter are locked together as one spacecraft right now. They've put itself into orbit and it's just doing scouting. So they have a, a high resolution camera on the orbiter and they're taking pictures of their landing site and trying to figure out how they want to approach it. And then once they are ready to land, they will separate 
they have an entry capsule just like any other lander would have. So they go through the atmosphere, there's a parachute, uh, and then it's got a landing platform with jets, so, you know, with rockets on it. Uh, and they're gonna kind of come down. I, I'm trying to remember, actually, I don't know this now too. They may have an airbag system as well um, that they're, they're looking at. So there might be a combination of, of rockets and airbags. Uh, but ultimately this landing platform will get to the surface and then the rover will kind of drive off of it and go and do its exploration. So that's kind of similar to how Spirit and Opportunity did it. You know, they had a landing platform versus, you know, the Sky Crane or whatever for Curiosity and Perseverance. So it's a little, it's a little rover, you know, kind of opportunity sized, um, but it's it's pretty capable. It's got some neat instruments on it and they're going to do some cool stuff. Will the scientists actually have full access to to what they're doing or will the Chinese sort of hold stuff back? Because that because they seem because that seemed to be the story, didn't it, with the stuff they were bringing back from the moon that there was not necessarily a fully hundred percent open science, was it? Yeah, it's certainly not a NASA level where the the images are just streamed directly to the internet when they're when they're downloaded. <laughs> um, that is, we're kind of spoiled from NASA for that. Uh, the the Chinese space agency does not do that. Uh, we don't really know the science strategy for Tianwen one yet. They have not really described how that's going to work other than I think they have said they plan on sharing the data. If we look at the Chang'e missions to the moon, um, one way they kind of do that is they uh, they have limited releases throughout the mission. So the government will put out, here's one picture, here's two pictures of what we're doing and, and kind of releases. They keep the data uh, for a while and let their own scientists work on it because they want to sort of get the credit for their own discoveries, which I can understand, I guess. Um, it's not not super scientific or, or, or you know, uh, community-driven the way we might think of it uh, over here, but um, I can sort of understand they want to do that. And then I think every year they kind of drop the Chang'e data as a set to say, okay, now other people can play with it as well. So maybe it's going to be the same for the, the Mars mission. We'll have to see. Yeah, really interesting. The, the one thing that um, completely... I, I completely missed, and I don't know why. Was halfway on the journey, the the Chan Wen released some cameras on a little sort of spacecraft <laughs> and took a selfie of the spacecraft on its way to Mars. Did you did you see that? Because I com- I completely missed it. It was crazy. I we no one expected it, and it was just such a neat little experiment. So I think that's the only time we've ever really seen. Um, a, a spacecraft traveling through deep space like that from that angle. Yeah, so it's like a, almost like a little CubeSat that just shot out of it. And it had, it, it, I think it tumbled a little bit, so they had to really time the picture, but just a little camera on it that, that took a picture, quickly beamed it back before it flew off into the nether and, and never came back. But uh, yeah, so we got this really awesome shot of the orbiter and the rover all tucked away, uh, illuminated by the sun, just kind of traveling through interplanetary space. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's what's funny, isn't it? I have to keep reminding myself how big these things are as well. When you see them in space, yeah. they don't look that big, and then you you sort of have to look at the pictures of when they're being assembled, and there's people in the on the factory floor standing next yeah. to these things. They're well, and and Tiananmen One actually is a as far as Mars spacecraft go, it was huge. I think it was the biggest payload we've that's ever been sent to Mars as one piece. Um, so it was you know, bigger than the Perseverance rover, bigger than, than all the NASA missions. The Trace Gas Orbiter was a large one as well, and that was pretty close, but I think Tianwen-1 beat it. It was something crazy like five tons or something like that. It was really big. Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks big. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's except in those photos, and, and it's like it's, it's really nice to go back to other photos so that you can get a, just a sense of scale. I, f- I find the same, actually, with um, with pictures of Starship, you see Starship taking off <laughs> and landing, and it's very, it's so hard to just keep remembering how big the thing is, right? Yeah, it's, it's really big. absolutely nuts. In fact, actually, what were your thoughts about the landing followed by explosion of that? <laughs> by the way, <laughs> it's it's funny that you ask that. So we had this whole big discussion in our uh, our community Discord with our listeners um, as to whether it was a good landing or not. You know, did it did it land successfully? Was sort of the question we had. And because on, on one hand, you're just like, well, yeah, it did. Like it landed, it stood upright, uh, everything seemed fine. Um, and then eight minutes later, it exploded. So like, well, okay, well, <laughs> did it explode because it, it hit hard and broke something, and then it was just a delayed release, or was that a completely separate problem? Nobody really knows. But it was kind of a fun discussion to. to to talk and there was some there was some uh, strong opinions so it was really uh, it was exciting to to have that with the, the listeners but yeah I, I don't know it looked good it looked like they you know they did better than the previous two so that's a step forward I guess um, they seem to be having some troubles with these uh, with the Raptors they you know 
one one time it, it lit and then didn't maintain thrust and this time it, it seemed to have too low of thrust so it hit the ground hard and i gotta figure that out but they got time this is sort of how spacex does it they just sort of blow stuff up and and, and learn from it and go on to the next one so they're chugging yeah. these things out like a, it's a factory literally it's a factory like the, the amount of starships coming out of this this uh, facility in boca chica is pretty crazy so i'm not too concerned that they're going to be able to figure it out no i mean it's uh, yeah i mean it's absolutely incredible and i love i love the fact that it's being you know just bashed out of steel and they just chuck it up and yeah. see, see what happens and yeah i think they just make, melt them down when they after they crash and, and then yeah. make another one out of it so. I know, it's just crazy i mean it, it, it is gen- genuinely crazy i mean i the only thing is like we, there was the um the chance to sort of join the japanese dude on on a trip around the moon in in a in a starship and I was thinking, after watching the crashes, I'm I'm not particularly comfortable going on a starship. <laughs> yeah, definitely not in 2023, right? That's going to no, be a little early. I mean, how how many flights is it going to have to do with cargo before anyone is going to trust that landing? You know, yeah, it's, it's going to take a little bit of work. Dicey, yeah, yeah, they, they've they've got work to do to sort of um, build confidence. That's for sure. Uh, I, I'm not super optimistic about a 2023 flight around the moon, but I'd be happy to be proven wrong. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to bet pretty big money that that's not going to happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, right. So um, yes, yeah, so it just leaves us with hope. Uh, <laughs> literally leaves us with hope uh, from the UAE uh, at 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 Mars. Are the UAE less like China and more the type of agency that are trying to fill the gap? Is this is this a science mission that will actually be new new pieces in the jigsaw puzzle of Mars? Yeah, well, the answer to that is both yes and no, surprisingly. So um, <laughs> the, the, the number one priority for the UAE in this whole project is to diversify their workforce. So um, that's like that is the number one priority. The, you know, this is a, a pretty new country. They're celebrating their 50th uh, birthday of independence uh, when they when they kicked you guys out and said, uh, we're on our own now. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, and like many countries in the, in the Middle East, they were heavily dependent on oil, right? That was their whole economy was oil. And so they really started to try and diversify that. And at some point, you know, earlier a decade or two ago, they said, let's get into space because that is a really cool high-tech industry where we can develop some really interesting skills, build up an economy around space, and then let's have the United Arab Emirates be the space nation in, in the Middle East and we can sell space services to other countries. And, you know, that's how we can we can uh, uh, make our living, right? So that's kind of the number one priority they're doing. They wanted to have this project that would um, force them, it'd be like a forcing mechanism for them to learn the skills and, you know, very quickly accelerate their, their, their skill sets. So that that's what's driving them. But at the same time, you know, early in the mission, they decided we don't just want this to be a make work project. We don't, like we want to actually have skin in the game and, and have some stakes to this. And so they looked at it from a scientific perspective and they uh, collaborated with a lot of scientists around the world to understand, you know, where is there gaps in the Mars science? And they think they found something that, you know, checked both boxes. It was new data and it was within the capability as a brand new space agency doing their very first mission to Mars. So the instrument set is very um, elegantly simple. It's just like three instruments. They're just taking pictures from orbit. Um, they're in this really fascinating orbit where they, uh, they are, it's elliptical, so they have kind of one part of the orbit that's close to Mars and one part of it that's far away. The whole orbit takes two and one quarter days to go around Mars, so it's it's quite big. And what that means is that every time they come close to it, Mars has turned one quarter from the last time. So every four orbits, they get a complete picture of Mars from the close side and from the, the far side. So they get this really holistic view of the planet. They're studying the weather. So they're able to sort of uh, understand the atmosphere and what's going on with the wind and the temperature and the pressure and all those kinds of things. So it's going to be it's going to be useful data, uh, especially when it's going to be paired with other instruments. You know, looking at it with Maven or with uh, the climate orbiter um, or the, sorry the the climate instruments on the other orbiters. Uh, combining all those data sets will make some pretty cool results. I think it's going to be good. Yeah. So have I got this right? Because my my understanding of, of reading that orbit was. Because hope 
isn't acting as a data relay, but like virtually all the other satellites on uh, that are at Mars also have to act as data relays for the landers that are on the on the ground. Um, but because Hope doesn't, it it can have a much higher orbit, and that's that's the gap that it's found. It can it can sort of look at yeah, like a like an actual zoomed out view of the planet where it can take in the whole atmosphere of what's happening there and then it, as the whole system and then combine that with maven's more zoomed in view of the atmospheres have i got that yes yeah, right? that's, that's a good way to think of it yeah they, they are in a very high orbit so um you know i think at the the lowest point is still something like twenty thousand kilometers above the surface it's not it's not close at all so the the relay capability would not be very good and they didn't bother even putting the relay antenna like nasa has a specific kind of antenna that they that they use on their orbiters and they give them like they gave one to isa for the trace gas orbiters and hey put this on your orbiter so that it can relay for us right um i think they did the same well maybe not maybe not with mars express but definitely with trace gas orbiter they gave them the, the specific type of antenna um, but hope doesn't have that so it's just its own mission it uh, survives on its own does its own science and sends that back uh, to earth so where are we at next? So when the Europeans finally get our act together and send ExoMars <laughs> 2022 and uh, get the Jamie Franklin rover on the on the ground, or is it, I think it's Jamie Franklin rover. I can't remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> will that will that will that will that will that help? Will that will that be? Is that a missing piece? Is is that like genuinely actually because of its delay? Um problematic for other missions in terms of it the the place that it holds or is it or is it not that important in terms of a bigger picture it's just more of a pity for that singular mission um no the the rosalind franklin is a is a very capable rover as well i'm actually quite excited for some of the instruments that it has it has a, a really impressive drill on it you know this thing can go down two meters into the soil to uh to go deep and the the martian subsurface is becoming more and more a place that we really need to start focusing on um more and more studies are concluding that going underground on mars is where we're going to learn the next big thing um and so short of driving the rover into a lava tube, which is a, you know, a mission concept that people are considering very seriously right now. Uh, drilling two meters in the surface is going to be awesome. Um, uh, the ExoMars rover has a great instrument called MoMA, uh, which is going to be just crucial for doing the same thing that Perseverance is doing, looking for signs of life. And so uh, I think it's going to be doing a lot of really good science. Uh, I'm very excited for it to get there. I was really, really disappointed when it, you know, couldn't fly last year with the rest of them and, and join the fleet. Although I'm sure that my, uh, my mental health is better having only having to follow three missions instead of four, because I don't know if I would have had capacity for it uh, last month, but that's, uh, that's a different story. No, it's going to be a good rover. Um, I'm, I'm excited for it. And uh, I think it will absolutely contribute to the science. Yeah, it is, it's such a pity. It is such a pity that it didn't it didn't go. But you're absolutely right. I mean, bear in mind that's going to be a very very stressful landing, right? Being that only the Americans have done it, and and we're still yeah. waiting for someone other than the Americans to land on Mars. That would yeah, have been it. That that would have been it, isn't it? And and of course now that that it, there's a chance that the Chinese might beat the Europeans now. It's it's definitely yeah it's it's likely at this point yeah yeah it's likely <laughs> you know provided nothing goes wrong with it but uh, yeah it's it is going to be a stressful landing um, you know both ESA and Roscosmos which is the the space agency you're partnering with to build the landing platform right so that's that's actually where the, the crucial part is the rover doesn't land the rover just rides along on this landing platform the Kazachuk landing platform which is built by Roscosmos and they haven't had an easy time of landing on Mars either you know the the, the two space agencies together are, are both struggling uh, with that so it's going to be a a, a a tense time yeah and I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to it but I'm also kind of dreading <laughs> yeah the, the the Russia and Mars uh, is pretty depressing, isn't it? When you look at the amount of missions that they've fired out that that didn't quite didn't quite work, did they? I mean, that that we could make the UK successfully landing if if Perseverance turned round and just opened up that last solar panel for Beagle. And, and if, <laughs> yeah. if it started working, then then the UK would have managed it. Uh, yeah, can, yeah, that's can true. We not, do you think we could have a petition to get Percy to? Because it's close, isn't it? Perseverance is actually pretty close to where Beagle landed, as far as I know. I'm trying it's, to remember it's in the where right Beagle sort of area. 
Hmm. Yeah, I don't have a map in front of me where Beagle was, but uh, I, even if it's close in the right area, I don't think it's close uh, within mission <laughs> driving distance. So uh, good luck. I, I, I would love to see you try, but I, I don't know if you'll be able to convince NASA, uh, NASA to do it. <laughs> it's still, it's still. I think, the most depressing thing on Mars is the fact that that's just one, one, one little, last solar panel one covering last up the antenna, right? <laughs> oh, no, it's just too horrible. Yeah, just, it's yeah, brutal. Yeah, yeah, it is brutal, but Mars is brutal, I suppose isn't it it is um, yeah yep. so we just gotta yeah china china landing their rover is going to be a big one isn't it so there's so many you you you've basically chosen a really good year haven't you to go um full time mars is yeah i kind of needed the time to be honest yeah, yeah. mars couldn't be busier could it <laughs> you got <laughs> no, helicopters landings science i mean it's it's quite is it possible that we might get a really good signal that Yes, we've 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 got a very good signal that there's uh, that there was previous life or actual biological life. Or do you think we're going to have to wait a long time for like a definitive answer on that? Well, I mean, that's the the million dollar question, right? Um, I don't think perseverance will find life itself. And that's not really in the cards. It doesn't quite have the instrument set for that, but it is. Yeah, absolutely possible that it could find you know evidence that at one point far in Mars's past something was there and that i mean it's it's hard to overstate how groundbreaking that would be and how fundamentally you know world changing that discovery would be um but uh, it, it's it's certainly possible and that's what they're trying right they're trying to answer that question and it, it's it's sometimes difficult to think about but the 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 proper scientific way is to remember that whether you answer it or not, that's that's good data, and you learn something. And so it's like it's it's kind of a win either way, right? If we find it, awesome. If we don't find it, that's kind of awesome too, because then we we know a little more, right? Yeah, I mean, how do you think it would look like? Say if this year, say if this year, perseverance or you know the combined the combined eleven <laughs> the combined eleven active missions, there was something in the data that revealed that yes, there had absolutely without question being life on mars at some point how would that how would that look like if that was to happen in the next few years do you you know what what's the most likely yeah. place for that to come from i mean the the delta is the prime suspect right now so uh i imagine it, it won't be soon i mean perseverance is going to have to spend a couple months sort of getting up to that and then it'll spend the next two years sort of climbing over it and, and, and doing samples and stuff. Uh, even if the rover itself finds something that looks promising, th this is the kind of discovery that will have to go through endless rounds of scrutiny and and reevaluation and new perspectives. Like you're going to have to have a thousand scientists look at this and, and poke holes in it and, and try and prove it wrong, um, which means it's not going to be quick and it shouldn't be quick. It should be like a very difficult process one that probably like being totally honest even if they 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 find a promising thing you know in situ on the ground they're going to wait for that sample to come back to earth and really you know chew holes with it so i don't expect perseverance to to conclude that within the next 10 years but uh, it, it certainly could put us on the path to doing that right and maybe that means that we need to send another mission there with with new instruments to follow up with those investigations and and, and build on that and go okay well we found something that looks like this we think it might be life but the only way we can confirm it is if we had this instrument another mission is off to the surface there to try and you know take that new instrument there and, and confirm it so it's a it's a difficult process it's science the speed of science sucks sometimes. It's really, you know, it's not very fast. <laughs> um, you know, I just, so this reminds me, we just had a, um, a podcast with uh, an Irish journalist, uh, uh, Leo Enright, who is amazing. It was a really awesome guy. And he had this great quote where he says uh, he likes flyby missions, you know, like New Horizons at Pluto. He says, because flybys are science at the speed of journalism. <laughs> you know, which is because <laughs> it just happens and you got to do, 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 and then that's, that's it. Right. But these surface missions are not at the speed of journalism. So I'm, I'm, I'm parking down for the long haul for the next few years to sort of follow that story. Yeah. I mean, so like some of these scientific papers, cause they come thick and fast, don't they? Some, some of them don't get noticed by the, you sort of big journalists uh, for, for, for a few months I, i've noticed that where it's like oh my god this is an amazing story and then the, you go to the paper and it was published like five months before <laughs> it took them yeah, ages and, to and it, spot it and it cites like you know 10 other papers that were published yeah. over the previous two years and, and they were all leading up to this conclusion it's yeah you can't keep any secrets in science it's, it's pretty easy to just you know 
sometimes they do like these embargoed releases where they have a press briefing where we're going to announce some new results and this person is going to be, you know, this scientist is going to be explaining what they found. You go, okay, you look up that scientist, you look at their last five papers, you know exactly what they're working on. So it's pretty yeah. easy to do. Yeah. I mean, did, I think I asked you this question the last time you were on. Would is that experience of it was Bill Clinton, wasn't it, with the with the Mars meteorite with the in the Rose Garden announcing mm-hmm, that we yeah. found life on Mars? Is has that actually? Do you think that's been a good thing in a way because people are uh, are less trigger happy with 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 kind of that kind of evidence? Although saying that the Venus the Venus clouds had a very similar feel to it for me. Yeah, they did. I mean, I, I'm sure that the science community learned some important lessons from the uh, the Mars meteorite in the 90s where, yeah, Bill Clinton said they'd found life on it. And then they're like, oh, Ashley, no, we didn't. Um, the, the Venus one is a great example of sort of the, the process, right? Because, uh, and they did a good job. So I was really impressed with the scientists that, that did that release because they sort of recognized that this is going to turn some heads. And so they they went through as much scrutiny as they possibly could within their own circles. They had everyone kind of look at it and poke holes. And they think that, you know, that it, it passed all the peer reviews um, within a small community and they said, it's still going to turn heads. So then they said, they're going to have a release. They partnered with journalists. So they actually went to like, you know, five or six different journalists or however many it was and said, these are our results. Can you interpret these and write these in a way that the public is not going to misconstrue them? Because, you know, we're, they're very careful to say, we have not found life on Venus. We have found something that today we can only explain by life and we don't know why it's there. That was the result, which is really inconclusive when you think about it. So they were very careful to to release that. And I, I was actually very happy with that process, um, even though once it got out to the wider science community and then thousands and thousands of people are looking at it, it kind of quickly got figured out that it wasn't life, you know, it was something else. And so um, we moved on from that. And that's that's exactly how the process of the works. And that's how I want it to work. So. I don't expect that finding life on another world is ever going to be like that Bill Clinton press conference. I don't think it's ever going to happen that way. And if it does, I'm very skeptical. If a president is announcing it, I'm like, "Mm, I don't think so. man. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) No, that is weird. Yeah. I mean, it's weird that you should say that, but yeah, I I think I totally agree with that. (laughs) But, but that's that's almost awful. That's actually almost awful that that you can't have, that that you, that president, announcing it would mean that it's not proper science it's terrible yeah. I, don't, I don't know how i feel about that but yeah yeah <laughs> it's, yeah it's uh yeah you've kind of you've were you in a bit of a panic when that when they thought that they'd found life on on venus just in case everyone went ah mars is old hat let's 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 <laughs> let's, let's, let's it's all about venus it's now all about venus no no i i'm i'm a even though I love Mars and Mars is my beat, I, I'm a lover of all planetary science and I cheer every Venus discovery. It's amazing. So yeah, yeah. I love it. I love all the planets. What have you got? What have you got coming up in on the podcast? Have you got anything exciting coming up? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, you know, we just kind of wrapped up our, our, our Mars arrivals coverage. Um, the, the last interview I did, it was really cool. I got to speak with uh, Swathi Mohan, who was the uh, EDL, you know, the voice of EDL. So if you watch the Perseverance Rover land, that, that JPL feed, she was the one calling out the milestones. She said, touchdown confirmed. Um, so she was a, an EDL engineer. And was she the really one with the terrified brain. eyes behind the mask? <laughs> yeah, I, she was a little nervous, I think. Oh yeah. my God. The, I don't think I've ever seen any, like the all of them in that control room <laughs> were... were well, I've never seen such stressed faces ever. It was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a difficult uh, situation because you're just sort of watching it happen, right? Um, but yeah, no. She was a, an awesome interview. She's really really cool. Got a great story, um, and taught me all about sort of the precision landing technologies for Perseverance and kind of how it all works. So um, check out that interview if you want. Coming up is uh, it's all going to be all science this month. So. Um, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference is starting on the fifteenth uh, of March, I think, and it's the biggest planetary science conference in the world. Last year's got canceled because of the pandemic, and so they've gone virtual this year. And I'm really excited to sort of unpack uh, all the results. They're going to have early perseverance results. They're going to have uh, curiosity results. Insight has got a big release coming. Uh, I'm hearing so they're they're going to kind of release some some new data about what the inside of Mars looks like. You know what the interior structure of Mars is starting to uh, to, to appear, um, and so that's kind of really fun. Some lunar sample stuff is going to happen. It's going to be great. I, I'm really excited for. It. I look forward to this conference every year. So we're going to be doing a bunch of coverage for that. 
Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I, I definitely need to learn more about Insight because, yeah, that, that whole idea that it's it's mapping the interior, that's one of the big reasons why Mars isn't like the Earth, right? You know? Well, we'll find out, I guess. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, maybe I've just made an assumption. God damn it. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Jake. And, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll see you on the other side. And when once this pandemic's, once this pandemic's over... Definitely booking flights, and we've got to watch something really cool. We've got to watch some like epic, epic launch of something. Well, so. yeah, I, I I'm looking forward to that. I I am normally a traveler. I don't like to sit around in one place for a long time. I'm often on the road and in planes and stuff, and so this has been a tough year for me Oof. to uh, yeah. to get by that. Um, I live about you know 20 kilometers from the American border, and I think in the before times I was crossing that border almost once a week just to you know do different things. So uh, it's been tough for being locked up in this one city. <laughs> so yes, I'm looking forward to it. I will I will get on a plane. You can get on a plane. We'll meet somewhere. We'll do something awesome. Well, yeah. If you if you find yourself in England. You, you obviously got to come and see me. <laughs> obviously, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Well, thanks very much. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can go over to www.interplanetary.org.uk where you can find show notes and other places to subscribe to the podcast. And if you've really enjoyed it, you can whiz over to patreon.com forward slash interplanetary and join the Spodcats. See you next week for part three of Mars Week. Bye-bye, Spodcats!